And as you're finding your places, you can try to find the book of Philemon as well. The easy way to remember it's just before Hebrews, so you can run into Hebrews pretty easy and back up. What a great time of prayer this morning and open hearts and things happening all around the world. And um, we'll continue to pray for Haiti. I ask you to continue to pray for uh, Kiev and Ukraine where Pavlo is and his wife as they minister there with uh, the war continuing to go on. And continue to pray for Dan and Crystal. There'll be some more information out about what's happening there in Lebanon and just all these places where we have brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's a, it's a battle, it's a war, uh, but it doesn't last forever. And we have eternity ahead. But let's not be lax in praying for our brothers and sisters everywhere in this city, this country, and other places on this globe. Thank you, Faith. Here in Wichita, though, this morning, we are carefully walking through what is the most intimate and personal of all Paul's letters in the New Testament. In fact, I would consider it the most personal letter of any of the New Testament. It is written by a former Jesus-hating, Christian-attacking religious leader named Paul, who himself was transformed by the Jesus that he hated into a new creation, not simply a new creation, but actually he has become an ambassador for that Jesus Christ. Paul is writing this letter, and I want to, to see how many of you recall, Paul is writing this letter of appeal from where? From Rome. From the city of Rome. He is in Rome, and he's staying at the Hyatt. No, not really. Where is Paul writing from in that city? He's in the city of Rome, and he is specifically in prison. He's imprisoned there. But he claims that he is a prisoner of, of Christ. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So although he's shackled and imprisoned, he knows that he is there under the authority of his Savior Jesus Christ. And this letter is written to a man by the name of Philemon. And since we get the name of the book, Philemon. Now Philemon is a very unusual character in the scriptures. What, do, what are some things that we know about him from last week? And you can look through those first seven verses uh, to remind yourself. What are a couple of things we notice about Philemon? Okay, great. He had a church that meets in his home. He is a slave owner. That's right. Okay, very, did you say close friend? That's right, a very close friend, a beloved brother. He's also considered a beloved co-worker. They, they labor together. They don't just come together on Sunday afternoons and, and have tea and, and talk about how the ministry is going. These guys have worked. They have labored. They have sweated together. They have toiled together. Um, we also see there that Paul prays for him often. 
by name specifically for Philemon. And we also know something else about Philemon. It's, I love the description here. It says that the love, his love for Christian brothers and sisters and his faith in God has reached Paul. He has a reputation of loving the fellowship of Christ deeply. His ministry of sacrificial deep fellowship is called koinonia. And that koinonia has refreshed the hearts, Paul says. It's refreshed the hearts of God's people. As you look at this description of Philemon, in my humble estimation, I think Philemon is one of the Bible's top examples of a faithful man of God. And one whom Paul had absolute confidence in. In the Roman prison yard, a very intriguing situation has developed. Paul has not mentioned a word of it in the first third of this letter. Last week I mentioned God's amazing, sovereign triangle of three transformed men. Paul, Philemon, and a man unnamed in the letter so far. How God had worked to bring each of these men to Christ, had moved them around that Mediterranean area, had their paths cross in some most amazing ways. This morning, we're going to move past Paul's introduction and we will be quickly linked into the appeal and person that this letter focuses on. As you look at what we look in these next ten verses... Paul has a very carefully designed request. And I've divided it up into five parts here. First of all, he is appealing on the basis of truth and love. Secondly, he is appealing on the basis of persons. Thirdly, he is appealing for action. Then he is appealing with purpose. And then lastly, he is appealing vicariously. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this very unique and, and precious letter from your Apostle Paul that you sent to present the gospel, particularly the gospel to the Gentiles. Lord, give us understanding. You, you have said in your word that these things are spiritually discerned. And unless your spirit works, we will not grasp the depth of, of who you are. But Lord, this is such, such a rich passage here. Uh, it, it represents so many amazing things about who you are, not just Philemon and Onesimus and Paul. So Lord, please open our hearts and our minds to you and speak this morning. Speak in spite of me, speak over me, speak to our hearts. Speak to me, Lord, that when we walk away, we will have known more about Christ and, and be ready and prepared to praise and glorify and make you known. Amen. Verse 8 says, Therefore, I, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting. Paul begins by appealing on the basis of truth and of love. There is truth behind these scenes. Paul has the right and authority as an apostle to be very frank with Philemon. In this situation, he has every spiritual right to command Philemon. Because God used Paul to bring Philemon to faith, he has the added authority of being Philemon's spiritual father. But Paul does not appeal to Philemon on the basis of what he could demand. 
He is pleading with his beloved brother Philemon on the basis of love. And in this letter, we have love at the forefront. Goes on to say, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. For the sake of love, it's, it's dia agape, agape. And it means the channel or the instrument of love. Rather than utilizing authority, which Paul often needed to exercise in his letters, and, and let me give you a couple examples. To the believers in Galatia, who were customizing the gospel by adding the rusted toxic chrome of legalism to the pure beautiful gospel of grace, he was very direct. He says to them in Galatians chapter 3, Oh foolish Galatians, and there's an exclamation point in, in my copy, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? That's not the letter to Philemon. And to the church in Corinth. Those who turned the sacred Lord's Supper into drunken, drunkenness and gluttony, he chastised. And he says in 1 Corinthians 11, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place... It is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And I only bring those two up to, to show the contrast of how unique and precious this letter is and who this man is that Paul is writing to. In this unique letter to his dear friend and co-worker in Christ, Paul is begging, pleading Philemon through the trusted conduit of love. This is not a desperate hope against hope pleading that somehow Philemon will listen and obey. It's not that. That would be completely out of sync with what we read of Philemon from last week and what we will see next week. Uh, just quickly to, to go back. Remember Philemon verses 4 through 7. He says this, I thank my God, says Paul, making mention of you, Philemon, always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. What, what a statement. And next week, Paul will sign off this letter with a certainty that as I read it, I, I could only wish how someday something like that could be written to me. He says, yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. 
You see, Paul doesn't come strong with authority here because he knows Philemon. So often he has to correct with a heavy hand. But this is a refreshingly different situation. In fact, Paul uses that word refresh only twice in all the letters in the New Testament. And both times it is here in this book related to Philemon's ministry. To refresh is a powerful picture describing an army at rest after a long exhausting march. Through Philemon God refreshes his people. As we read this, it's evident Paul loves the fact it is Philemon he is dealing with. He knows this man desires the will of God and that he will seek the glory of Christ. But Paul has some explaining to do. Verse 9, second part of that says, Being such a one as Paul the aged. Appealing now here on the basis of persons. And he first begins with himself, Paul the aged. Now, why the aged? After all, in our culture, that is one of the last labels anyone would claim. Everyone wants to be considered youthful, or at least younger than they really are. Uh, the cosmetic industry, clothing designers, workout gyms, all do a robust business trying to help people escape that title of the aged. But Jewish culture as do many other non-Western cultures in our day, equated age with experience and wisdom. It communicated careful deliberation. The aged give prudent counsel. Paul is aged. He's probably about 60 as he writes. Now, those of us who have passed that, calm down. 60 years for Paul in his shoes is like 160 years for any other man. Remember his journal from 2 Corinthians. He's 60 now. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Beginning with verse 23. And I, I often bring this up. I, I'm just stunned by this man Paul and what he has done and been through. He asks, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. And labors more abundant in stripes above measure that is whipped stripes. In stripes above measure. In prison more frequently. In deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me, my deep concern for all the churches. How did the man live past 40 going through life like that? It's amazing. So at 60, you can imagine, I've, and it can be dangerous. You don't want to put too much on it, but I've tried to think of what it looked like for Paul to come into a city. Beaten like he was so many times. I'm sure there was contortions in the body, perhaps a hunched over, perhaps a limp, all sorts of things, scars. You cannot read 
this chapter and get away from that. So here he is at 60. He's an aged man and very aged. And he goes on to say, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul the aged is also Paul the prisoner. This is repeated from verse 1 where Paul introduces himself. It's the word desmios and it's a word describing shackles and bonds and chains. You see, not only is Paul the aged, the wise and experienced, but he is Paul the prisoner. A bold, uncompromising soldier for Christ. Even as the aged, he will not back down. He will not look for greener pastures. He goes into every opportunity to make Christ known, whether that costs him imprisonment, and it will eventually cost him his life. His head will be removed by the Roman executioner. He is Paul the prisoner. What an honor it must have been for Philemon to receive such a personal, affectionate, and affirming letter from this profound man of God. Without a doubt, Paul has Philemon's full attention. He says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. His appeal now is based on this other person, this man named Onesimus. He is the son out of prison. Literally, Paul writes here, the translation is, I gave him birth. Paul has called Timothy, Titus, and others his sons in the faith. So that's not unusual. But here, Paul writes in a way that seems very informal and straightforward to Philemon. Philemon, I had a son while in prison. And his name is Onesimus. Now, I want you to look carefully at verse 10. Look carefully at verse 10 at Paul's appeal. It does not say I appeal on behalf of Onesimus, but actually it says I appeal for Onesimus. You see, no doubt Paul speaks on behalf of Onesimus, as we see when he speaks of him in verse 12 as his own splachnon, his intestines, his bowels, his his own deeply knit heart. Or in verse 17 he writes, Receive him as you would me. But the wording of this appeal is very specific. It's direct and practical. In simple terms, Paul very much desires for Onesimus to be returned to him in prison. He's appealing for Onesimus to be returned to him. And we're going to see why that's evident there in a moment. Onesimus is the son born in prison, but he is also the servant transformed. Verse 11 says, Who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. Some of yours cut to the chase a little better and says, he was known as useless, but now he's useful for you and for me. In verse 10, Paul brings up the name Onesimus. It was a very common name of Roman slaves in that day. And it itself also means useful or profitable, the name Onesimus. You know, it would have fit nicely if you were a first century servant to have that name. You know, it's a role that is somewhat self-fulfilling. After all, wouldn't you enjoy going about your work and always being referred to as Mr. Useful? Or, or that's Mr. Profitable. Man, are we glad we have him here. And that's the name that was given to Onesimus. But then Paul plays off that name Onesimus. And in so doing, he unveils a new man to Philemon. In the past, the servant that you had by the name of useful was anything but that for you. In fact, 
He was achrestos, which means he was useless. He was unprofitable. But now useless is actually euchrestos, or useful. He is profitable. He's beneficial both to you, Philemon, and to me. Philemon, Onesimus, really is useful now. He is a changed man. Perhaps Paul reminded Philemon of what he had written to the Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away. All things have become new. And many of you have experienced that in your own life. And you've seen that in the lives of others. They were going this way, headed in a destructive direction, and God grabbed that life, turned that around, and it's a completely new person. That is what has happened to this runaway slave. Because of that, now Paul is appealing for action in verse 12. Paul has already taken the first necessary step. He says here, I am sending him back. Now, if it is true that Tychicus and Onesimus delivered this letter in person, which is what we read in Colossians, then it's obvious to Philemon that Onesimus has been sent back since he's likely standing right there before him. But Philemon had no idea until the arrival of this letter, opening it up, that Paul, his beloved Paul, his mentor, his father in the faith, Paul was linked to Onesimus, his runaway slave, and that Paul in fact was orchestrating Philemon's return and reconciliation to his slave. What a shock this had to be for Philemon to have his runaway slave, Onesimus, standing right there before him. But I tell you, it was a far greater shock to receive a personal letter from his dearest friend, Paul, delivered by the hand of that slave. You see, when I'm talking about this triangle, this confluence of personalities, events, these things are amazing. I've sent him back, Philemon, and here's my appeal to you. You, therefore, receive him that is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. You see, Paul is not handling this reconciliation with Onesimus and Philemon as a mediator who simply wants to make all things go down like they should, that all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted to get everything in place. That would be fine, but that's clearly not the case. As often is said in the business world, Paul has skin in the game. And I tell you, he has even more than skin in the game. We read here, he has splachnen. That means his guts, his intestines, his own bowels are invested. Now remember last week we talked about that. Three times Paul uses this Greek word. And what does it do? It conveys a deep-seated emotion. Although translated heart... In many versions, it goes deeper than any surface affection. Sometimes it's translated bowels, or tender mercies, or inward affections. And, and I don't mean to diminish the idea of the heart, but Paul rarely uses splachlin, and when he does, it is an intense, profound passion. You see, this Onesimus has become to Paul a brother to the very core of his being. From the beginning, Paul prayed often for Onesimus. He served him. 
He explained the gospel to him. He witnessed him repent and believe and saw him become a dramatically new creation in Christ. And now Onesimus, he is serving Paul in his imprisonment and in his gospel ministry. Their hearts have been welded together. Now naturally, Paul would love to have kept Onesimus with him for continued ministry. And knowing Philemon like he does, Paul believed that Philemon would, be, would have been in favor of that too. Under different circumstances, it would have been like Philemon sending Onesimus to serve Paul in his imprisonment. However, Philemon had not sent Onesimus out of support to Paul. In fact, Onesimus had illegally run away. And the day Onesimus fled, he did not head out with the intention of going to serve Paul in prison. So Onesimus' history required that Paul approach this amazing confluence of the sovereignty of God in the lives of these three men in a very wise and sensitive way. Which is why he goes on to tell Philemon, goes on to say, although I would like him back to serve me in prison, I did not want to do anything without your consent, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but be voluntary, by your own free will. So he is to act with consent here. Paul only desired Onesimus to be returned to serve him, which is what he wanted, if in fact it was something that Philemon himself would desire as a way to bless Paul. Friend to friend, I'm sending you my servant. There's a little bit of a change here in the letter. It looks as if Paul, as he was writing, may have thought Philemon could be wondering, what is going on here? Why in the world did this take place? So Paul interjects this and he appeals with this purpose. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose. That you might receive him forever. And that little phrase is really great. For perhaps. It's such a humble assessment. It's a humble assessment by a man that probably knew God as well or better than any man on the face of the earth at that time. For perhaps. Who knows Philemon? My good friend, could it be? Paul doesn't tell Philemon, listen, I got it, this is a spiritual thing and you know that everything happens for a purpose. We do know that, don't we? But often in the midst of a hard trial or a tragedy, we do not know what that purpose is. Paul doesn't say that he does either. He says perhaps. If we go back into the Old Testament, to the book of Esther, Esther's uncle, Mordecai, during what is likely to be the extermination of the Jewish race, approaches his niece and tells her, Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai didn't know either, but he certainly was hoping that this was God's working. Joseph, in Genesis, he responded to his brothers saying this, As for you, you meant evil for, against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Earlier in chapter 45, he had told these brothers, Now it was not you who sent me here, but God. 
And if, if you're not familiar with the story of Joseph, I encourage you to go back to Genesis and look that up. It's, it's the most fascinating story of God's sovereignty and his work in the lives of his people, of repentance, of change. It's an amazing story. Alistair Begg commented, he said, In Christ, we're not held in the grip of blind, deterministic forces. And we're not bobbing around in the sea of chance. We are under the tutelage of God's providence. End quote. My personal experience has been God's sovereign will is usually mysterious and unnoticed as it unfolds. Philemon, could it be that the purpose in Onesis is running away for this period of time was so that you could receive him back forever? You see, to receive Onesimus back has great potential. Paul goes on to write, no, receive him back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now this little book has sparked some disagreement as to whether Paul is explicitly or implicitly directing Philemon to free Onesimus from slavery. Is he intending to emancipate Onesimus? Ligonier Ministries gave this brief summary of slavery at the time of this letter. And, and this is important if you're going to understand what's going on here. The apostles lived under the first century Roman economy, a system in which slavery was foundational. Estimates vary, but the slave population in the Roman Empire was enormous. As many as a third of any city's residents were slaves. Moreover, it was not only the rich who owned slaves, but also those of lesser means. And I would interject myself in some of the research that you even have slaves owning slaves in the time of first century Rome. When slaves were freed in the first century, they often stayed in the employment of their former slave owners, if they had been treated well, or if they had few other opportunities. Although slaves were encouraged to get an education and were often more taught than their masters, they would not necessarily find gainful employment upon release. It was by no means a guarantee that freed slaves would have a better life in freedom than in bondage especially if their former owners did not have the funds needed to employ their newly freed slaves or were unable to sell them some property with which they could start anew. Again, this is not to glorify ancient slavery. Rather, it shows that personal freedom was not esteemed as highly back then as it is the modern Western, as in the modern West. Manumission could be a ticket to a poorer life for a former slave. End quote. You see, what was happening in first century Rome is a world of difference from what took place in our country when African men, women, and children were kidnapped out of their own land. They were transported to America under brutal conditions and then often horribly or violently treated by those who would purchase them and use them as property. The Bible speaks in condemnation of that clearly as man-stealing and kidnapping and a whole host of other denunciations when men mistreat other men made in the image of God by God. But 
in order to comprehend what Paul is writing to Philemon about Onesimus, we must investigate it within the reality and details of the time and culture in which it was written. To apply the conditions of 18th and 19th century American slavery to a first century event in Rome would distort and confuse the message of Philemon. We would miss God's communication and we would create an interpretation that he did not intend. It may be risky to offend the political sensitivity of those who see more regarding social justice in this passage. But it is a far greater danger to ignore the context and details clearly given and then misinterpret or twist God's word. Paul says to Philemon, receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. More than a slave. How much more than a slave? Now as a beloved Agapetos, a beloved brother. Philemon, Onesimus is a new man. Just like you, Philemon. And just like me, when Jesus transformed us. He now is our beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You know, Paul also spoke to Timothy about the fundamental change the gospel brings to the slave and master relationship. In 1 Timothy 6, he wrote, Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more. Because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. And then to the church in Ephesus, Paul writes, and masters do the same thing to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. And then to the believers in Colossae, he writes, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. MacArthur wrote, The master and slave were to enjoy spiritual oneness and fellowship as they worshiped and ministered together. And this gets very interesting. In each of Paul's letters that address slaves and masters, there is actually considerably more instruction given to the slaves than to the masters. And I'm wondering, well, why is that? Well, it appears that slaves and servants made up a much larger portion of the church than did the masters. Not simply because there would be fewer slave owners than slaves, but also because of how Paul describes the makeup of Christ's kingdom. In his letter to the Corinthians, the kingdom of Christ looks like this. And please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. 
But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. And that word redemption is to buy out of slavery, out of bondage. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. That's what the church looked like in those days. The foolish, the weak, the nobodies. Now that wasn't exclusive, but that's what Paul is telling us. You see, God, God could not care less about the world marketing strategies for building His brand. He needs no brand. He will never glorify Himself according to the world's desires or influences. In the faithful church of Christ Jesus, distinctions are obliterated. Distinctions are obliterated. Galatians chapter 3 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Praise God. You see, in the first century church, think of this, the picture of a slave as an elder teaching his own earthly master the word of God with authority. Think of that picture. The slave as an elder teaching his own earthly master the word of God with authority. It captures Christ's own command from Matthew chapter 20 where he said, And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Philemon, if you then count me as your partner, as a partner, receive him as you would me. Finally here, Paul is appealing vicariously. The definition of vicarious is to act for another, to fill the place of another, or to substitute in the place of another. Paul is appealing vicariously. He says, receive him. Now Paul is not saying, if you count me as a partner, and I sure hope you do this time. No, on the contrary, he has full confidence of Philemon. He says, he is a partner. And it's the word koinonos, which is important because in verse 6, Paul spoke of the deep fellowship that marked Philemon's ministry. It was called koinonia. And as you can tell, this idea of being a partner, a koinonos, comes from that Greek word. Paul sees Philemon as a brother who is all in regarding the kingdom of God. This is not a shaking condition that Paul hopes works out. Not at all. It is a solid rock foundation upon which he confidently gives Philemon direction. He says, receive Onesimus. In verse 18, but if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. Charge me. And I think the outline says charge him. It shouldn't. He's saying charge me. The ESV study Bible says Roman society expected brutal punishment of fugitive slaves and bond servants. The times resulting in death. Thus Paul is asking Philemon to do something quite extraordinary by foregoing Onesimus' debt. Onesimus has wronged Philemon. Paul assumes this, but he doesn't specify. 
Obviously, Philemon lost the work that Onesimus was supposed to have done. Philemon may have had to hire a replacement. There is also the possibility that Onesimus stole from Philemon. Why? In order to finance his over a thousand mile trek to lay before him to get to Rome. He probably took some things to help himself along. Other financial obligations may have been owed by Onesimus as well. We don't know. Paul probably did not know the extent of Onesimus' debt either. But what did he do? He willingly shouldered it all. He said, put it on me. Whatever it is, I will pay it. Paul has appealed to Philemon to gladly receive back the runaway slave Onesimus based on five points. Paul's relationship with Philemon, Onesimus' new salvation, Onesimus' new character, Onesimus' new relationship as a brother to Philemon, and fifthly, he appeals based on Christ's lordship of Philemon. As we look at this story, in like manner, God desires that we gladly receive all believers on the same basis. His saving and sanctifying work in their lives and ours opens the gate to rich, deep, costly, and eternally rewarding koinonia. That gut-level fellowship. When we have somebody share what was shared this morning, as we've had at different times, that's from the bowels. That's from the gut. And if we walk out of here and forget about it until Sunday, we have failed in Koinonia desperately. We need to embrace the the heartaches, the praises, the worships that each one of us carries. We want that gut-level faithful fellowship. You see, there was a very real temptation for Philemon to allow Onesimus' past performance as Mr. Useless his offenses and wrongs committed. And then that natural human separation between roles and cultures, it could have sabotaged the whole reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. Because of Onesimus' wrongdoing against Philemon, Paul asked Philemon to receive his servant back, not as the sinning wrongdoer of the past, but how? Receive Onesimus back as Paul, your dear friend. Philemon was to look at Onesimus standing before him as if he were seeing the person of Paul standing right there. Likewise, because of his sin against Philemon, Onesimus owed a very real and legal debt. Paul didn't say, Oh, just forget about that, Philemon. Don't let it bother you. No, Paul said to him, whatever he owes you, I will pay. You know this turns directly to the gospel. In a similar but far greater way, everyone in this room, on this planet, has offended and sinned against the Master, against God our Creator. Because of that, we are separated from him. A slave from the master. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, 
Your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. You see, we wander around in this life searching for the next green pasture or moment of excitement or or pleasure or purpose. The Bible says we are like sheep that have all gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. We have grasped in vain at mirages of purpose and delight created by Satan and the world. We hope and we hoped that they would satisfy, but they do not, and they will not, and they cannot satisfy. But God, but God intervened in the midst of our self-destructive wandering, our hopelessness, and our rebellion. That insurmountable debt of sin that I owed, that you owed God, that separated us from Him, would be paid. God intervened. It would be paid by His Son, Jesus Christ. God sent Him to rescue His children. And He has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. He was wounded. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with the whipping stripes across his back we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But God intervened, it says, and the Lord intervened and laid on his son the sin of us all. Peter describes Christ's death of sacrifice for our sin this way. 1 Peter 2, he says, He himself bore our sins in his own body on that tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed. As Paul gladly paid for the debt Onesimus owed his master Philemon. Jesus Christ gladly paid the debt we owe our master the Lord God. In fact. In fact this act becomes the trademark of God's love. Romans 5.8 tells us this. It says but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. What an intro. Do you want to know how God demonstrates His love? This is it. The ultimate. While we were still sinners, that condition, Christ died for us. That's how He demonstrated His love. We were completely undeserving. We were completely deserving of something and that was condemnation for eternity. And in the midst of that, He chose to die for us. That is our God. But, There's more to correlate here with Onesimus and Philemon. Not only was our sin paid for in full by Christ through the crucifixion, the very righteousness of Christ was imputed to us as well. This means that Christ's perfect life, His sinless obedience, and His love to the Father throughout His lifetime was placed upon us. It covered us as if we are Christ standing before God as His beloved Son. You see what we're talking about. Receive Him as if it were me. Christ says to the Father, Receive Greg. 
as if he were me, Jesus. It is the most astounding event in history. As Philemon was to receive Onesimus as if he were his beloved friend Paul, God receives those who trust in Jesus as if they were Jesus, his own beloved son. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, I want to be found in Christ not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. You see, by faith, we, atta- we are given, attain, obtained the righteousness of Christ. It becomes ours because it is given to us through faith. May we rejoice in how God has received us runaway sinners as His own sons and daughters. May we receive each other in the body of Christ in the same way that He has received us. Unhindered. Unhindered by past pre-Christ living, role or status in society, personal preference, traditions or tastes, personal offenses. May we do it unhindered by that. As John said, by this all will know that we are his disciples if we love one another. I'd like to close with this verse, section of verses from Colossians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. But Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. There's that word again. Put on tender mercies. Kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, So you also must do. Hear that. I know some of us in here are struggling with that. It keeps some of us from fellowship with each other. We avoid each other. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. To have that deep fellowship. But above all these things, put on love. Which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. To which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father thank you for your word. It is that two edged sword. That pierces even to dividing soul and spirit. And joints and marrow. And is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is living and powerful Father. And I pray that our hearts will be revived by it. Resuscitated. And led as we go out into the world now. Lord if. If there is offenses, if there is anything that keeps one brother or sister from each other, Lord, help us to obey and to forgive. And if it's a necessary thing to come and work it out in love, through the conduit of love, for the sake of love. (coughs) We pray this, Father, that you would be glorified in this church, that you would be glorified in our families that you would be glorified in each individual man and woman here. For you are worthy. Amen.